I'm going to do this. I'm going to run for the United States Senate. The time is now for fresh ideas and new leadership. I'm running for student council because of you and for you. That is why I stand before you today to announce my candidacy for president. This is the Arena Talks podcast where we interview emerging political leaders from across the country. This is Ravi Gupta, co-founder of the Arena. And today we interview Mayor Michael Tubbs of Stockton, California, one of the youngest mayors in America. Uh, Michael Tubbs talks about his rise uh, through adversity in Stockton, his uh, first campaign to unseat an incumbent for the city council, and then his second campaign to unseat another incumbent uh, to become one of the youngest mayors in America. Let's jump in. Mayor Michael Tubbs, welcome to the Arena Talks podcast. Thank you so much for having me, brother. Mr. Mayor, you grew up in uh, South Stockton, uh, and you did not come from a political dynasty. You really overcame some real challenges in running for office. When did you first decide that public service was in your future? Um, so I think just being born um, from a family rooted in like the social justice tradition of the of the Christian church, and I always felt that public service I, that was just always my orientation. But I didn't know it could be like a job for me. It was more of a calling or something I was just supposed to do anyway. Um, and then in high school, a lot of my community service was spent um, in local government. Um, going to legislative visit days, being an advocate, learning community organizing, serving as chair of the Youth Advisory Commission. And it really showed me that decision makers weren't that different from me. And that number two, but the difference was that a lot of them had no idea in terms of lived experience of a lot of the issues they were facing. And as someone whose mom had them as a teenager, who grew up in poverty, whose dad has been incarcerated my entire life, I, I felt that, well, wow, I have a different perspective on some of these issues that could be helpful. And then in college, I was really exposed to public service as a career in terms of being a policymaker or working for think tanks and, and, and things of that stuff. Things of that sort, excuse me. Um, but then it was actually when I entered in the White House, and my job was to work with mayors and councils nationwide. But I really saw that elected office, um, especially at the local level, had that opportunity and the chance to really affect folks at scale, especially people from the communities like I come from, the communities I'm very interested in serving. Yeah. And, you know, one interesting thing I read about you, and, and this really uh, resonates with me because I was raised by my mom. Um, when you were in high school, you wrote an essay about overcoming the mistakes of your parents. And, you know, it sounds like you praised your mom uh, for overcoming adversity, um, but also uh, were super reflective and honest about your father. Um, how much of that background, uh, it seems like there are a lot of politicians out there who have this duality of their parents. You know, one parent who uh, you struggle uh, to, to, to um, keep in your life, and then another parent who steps up. Um, how much of that do you think is reflected in your politics and your drive to run for office? Oh, I think 100%. I think for me, the personal is political um, and, and vice versa. And I think especially for a lot of the issues I care about. I, I would think I would care about them in general, but it's personal to me. So that, that's why it's so urgent. And that's why I'm so pushing on things like poverty or things like women empowerment and women's rights. Because almost for all the single parent headed household, that's the primary breadwinner for the family. If they're making 77 cents on the dollar, that's an issue for the, for, the, for the woman, but for the children that she's raising. Um, and things like mass incarceration and, and, and poverty policy and education are all because those different systems have touched and affected not just my life, but the life of 
um, many of the folks I, I grew up with. So I, I think for me, my passion and my drive and my desire to serve comes from being in some of the most marginalized communities and having experience that's in line with millions and millions of Americans that usually is not part of the political discourse or at least aren't at the table where decisions are made. Yeah. And, you know, and, and speaking of your family, you had tragedy. 2010, uh, a cousin of yours was murdered at a Halloween party. And, and I read that this was a turning point for you. At this point, you know, you know, we share in common that we're Truman scholars. Uh, you were a successful student at Stanford. Um, but I read this quote from you. Uh, you said, after your cousin's murder, I decided it would be cowardly for me to continue to do research and write essays about all of Stockton's problems and not try to do something about that. Um, you want to talk a little bit about what, you know, take us back to that time and place and, and what were your immediate next steps there? Yeah, well, well I think a, a lot of the... In terms of writing essays or even being a Truman scholar, part of it I talked about growing up in Stockton, how that informs my worldview. So I realized that growing up in Stockton, definitely I struggled, but it also gave me a lot of benefit um, in terms of being very competitive for scholarships and, and things of that sort. And I spent a lot of my time in college actually writing papers about Stockton and theorizing, but from a very removed perspective, like this is what these folks should do, um, which I think often, which I know is easier than actually being the folk that has to do and deal with resource constraints and limitations. Um, so after my cousin was murdered, it was a really kind of come to Jesus moment for me. Um, I had just completed an internship at Google, and I loved it. I had was an intern at the White House. I was headed to South Africa for three months after that. Um, and, I, and I felt like I could do, literally do anything in the world. Um, but then I thought that in terms of my definition of success, I was like, well, it's hard for me to feel personally successful or happy when my family is still dealing with the very real struggles I left. I get to one thing to write about the Cradle Prison Pipeline and write about um, making urban communities safe and theorizing about it and talking about it. But it's another thing to actually be in the trenches. So I, so I also felt that, um, well, I felt two things. My first response was, I had to find a way to channel my anger because I was very, very, very angry, understandably upset. But the, but the second thing was really being reflected about, like, wow, how many people from South Stockton, how many people with a teenage mother, how many people with a father in jail, um, how many folks can go from that to a staffer in the White House? And maybe those opportunities and experiences weren't just for me, <laughs> but maybe there's a greater purpose in it. Um, so that... Took some time, some reflection, some thinking. And then my senior year, when I decided to run, um, I told people, people like, oh my gosh, that was such a brave and courageous thing. But being 21 at the time and, and even dumber than I am now, for me, it was like, well, if I lose, I'll, I'll still get a job. Uh, my, my degrees aren't, aren't going anywhere. Um, so for me, that, that created a soft landing space, which made me uh, more willing to take what some are perceiving risk. Yeah. And speaking of the risks that you took, you know, when you ran, uh, you ran against an incumbent that first time, right? Yeah, almost every every time I've run thus far has been against an incumbent. Um, but the first time the guy I ran against, um, he was chair of the county Republican Party. He had been in local office from Parks and Rec Commission and the school board and city council for almost 20 years. Uh, so there's a series of relationships there. Um, and he was also the lone vote against bankruptcy. So some of our... Um, some of my friends in labor were supportive of him for, for that. 
it was this weird constellation of things we were up against, but it, it made for a very interesting campaign and a great learning experience. And so in talking about running against incumbents, you've now done it. Uh, you did it for council and you did it uh, in your mayor's race. Uh, you know, one key constituency here at the arena are people running for office and some of our folks are, are running against incumbents or pondering one against incumbents. Uh, what are some tips you give folks uh, when they, you know, in entering a race, you know, against an, an entrenched incumbent? Um, what, what advice would you give some of our candidates out there? Well, first you have to do research, right? Like some incumbents are stronger than others. Um, you have to really look at almost... <laughs> To use a J.R.R. token um, reference, when um, when Bilbo was fighting Schmeagol, like look for the like the, the exposure in, in the dragon. So where's the weak spot? Um, and I and I think that comes from research and data and analytics because oftentimes you have incumbents who represent communities that you look at the data they probably wouldn't make the most sense in terms of fit. So I think it starts with data. Where what's the vote total? What's the number? Um, who's not engaged that could be engaged and help tip the scale. So make sure you have a viral path to victory. Um, number two, it's hard to be an incumbent if you have no set of relationships. And I think even if the incumbent's horrible, but if you're just moving in somewhere, if you haven't been involved politically, it still may be hard to beat them the first time. So make sure when you run, you have a series of relationships you bring with you of people who know your passion, know your talents, and are incredibly loyal to you and believe in your mission and vision because you can't do it by yourself. Um, and I think number three, and what I tell my staff all the time, is that expert opinion isn't always so expert. So you don't just talk to the political class; talk to like the people at the very, the very ground level, because there's more of them than consultants or or key endorsers. And I think people spend a lot of their time in the treetops, but it's really, especially taking out an incumbent. Most of the times, you're not taking out the incumbent from the treetops; you're taking them out from the grassroots, and we figure out for the folks on the ground what's going on, what's happening, and then find one issue area that you can like begin to build expertise on so when it's time to run, there's, there's, there's a narrative there that I've been doing this while they're betraying me back. Yeah, and what's an example of the kind of advice, um, I mean, this really, this makes a lot of sense to me, is that some of your best advice is going to come from the non-expert, non-political class. What's the kind of advice that you've gotten either in your mayor's race or for the council that came from the ground up that you feel like you would not have gotten from the strategists? Well, it, 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 well, it's their whole first campaign. We spent our first month knocking on doors in a public housing project in Stockton. Um, that's before I knew about voter lists or anything like that. Um, so we knocked on doors talking to them, and that was a year to see that they declared bankruptcy. And at that time, so much of the political narrative was this narrative around the city being bankrupt. But when we knocked on doors, that's not what people talk to me about consistently for a month. They, they were like, well, the city has been bankrupt in leadership. Um, they talked about how they wanted more opportunity for their kids. They talked about economic displacement and lack of opportunity. Um, so we really grounded our campaign in that because for most people outside of those who work for the city, the bankruptcy of the city didn't personally affect them, right? I mean, affect them in terms of service delivery, but it didn't really affect them in a real visceral way in the way that, like, making sure that kid is safe does, for example. That was very helpful, because everyone was like, you have to talk about bankruptcy. Was like, that's not what our folks care about. Um, but it's still an important topic, but it just wasn't something that was going to resonate the most with voters. The second thing, because I, I was even younger than I am now, 
Then they have this beard I'm trying to grow out. So I look like very young, like 21 looking 18. And <laughs> all the consultants were saying, do not be around young people. Do not take pictures with young people. It's going to emphasize your age. But then when I knocked on doors, people were so excited that I was young. That was like the biggest asset. They're like, you're young. You have energy. I want my kids to be like you. My kids will listen to you. There was young people who formed our primary volunteer base. Um, so those two things came from the folks in the neighborhood. And if I had listened to experts, that probably would have been, it probably would have been a little bit different. And that's not to say that expert opinion means nothing. It just means it's not everything. And there's something the expert told us about targeting voters and talking to high propensity voters and things of that sort that were very helpful. So I think you need both. And I think oftentimes people do one extreme, they want to do everything no expert opinion, no data, just by instinct and gut, which is crazy. Um, but also, folks, just when you listen to like people get paid thousands of dollars to get you to pay them, to tell you what to do so you can pay them more. And that's also not the, um, the, the best way that we do in life. Yeah. And so you seem to have uh, had a knack for getting the most out of uh, opportunities that come your way. So, you know, you meet Oprah, you get a $10,000 donation from her. Uh, you you meet uh, at an NAACP debate. You meet Obama, um, and you know it sounds like you had a pretty interesting interaction with him too. And then you wound up going to work at the White House. Uh, in, in giving advice to folks like you who come from non-privileged backgrounds, you know, you know, you're you're not a Kennedy, right? You don't have this name that's going to get you through the doors. Um, what advice do you want to give to folks, young folks coming from non-privileged backgrounds about getting the most out of their interactions and the most out of the openings that might come their way? Well, there's a, there's a famous interview uh, that Tupac did on Christmas. And he talks about how, given his background and where he comes from, that he didn't, he didn't walk into an inheritance, but he was the inheritance. And he had to create that and that he was like literally creating his family name. And I gave him a certain hunger and urgency. I think I, 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 I definitely agree with that. I think it's, it's easy oftentimes to complain or be resentful or jealous of people who come with more. But I think coming from like, the majority of Americans, the majority of our communities aren't from political families, right? Um, it yeah. takes early votes to win. So in, in that way, you have, I mean, it's not easier, but you have a lot in common with the majority of the people you want to represent. But to your point, you have to position yourself to take advantage of opportunity. Um, and I think I've been successful in that way um, because of a couple of things. I think, number one, just being super authentic. Um, and, and then number two, um, I realized that really important people don't like self-important people. And that the way you impress somebody who's really impressive is to be humble. Um, and to put others before yourself. And then, I mean, there's a couple of scriptures that talks about that. There's one in Proverbs that says, let somebody else praise you and not your own mouth. And I think part of the reason why the Oprah thing happened is because at that lunch, I didn't go in saying I'm running for office. I want a donation. I went in listening to the girls she brought and asked them questions about how they, what they wanted to get out of the school and answering questions they had about Stanford. And then someone else mentioned I was running for city council, which made it not me being super aggressive, but like it, it wasn't like some opportunistic thing, if that makes sense. So I think it's finding opportunities, but in those opportunities, present your best self and it's understanding that, that things take time, there's process, and there's also providence that if you're in the right place at the right time with the right attitude, um, good things will happen, but you also can be a shrieking violent. So it's this weird balance you have to strike. 
Yeah. And what's interesting to me is that you're not just great at seizing opportunities, but you're, you have a knack for overcoming challenge, you know, and that goes all the way back to when you were a kid. But, you know, when you came to the arena summit in November, uh, right after the election or December uh, 2016, you gave a super, one of the most direct, honest, forthcoming, authentic speeches I've ever seen a politician give where you said, look, like you literally put on the screen the mistakes that you made and the attacks that people had against you when you were in council and said, this was me. These are the mistakes I made. And I, I ran for mayor anyway, when people thought I was politically dead. Um, what, like, what is, what is preventing politicians out there from, uh, or people running for office from, uh, from just being that honest and open about their backgrounds and mistakes that they've made. What, what do you think separates you from a lot of the folks out there who do everything they possibly can to hide everything about themselves? Uh, well, well, I think it's a function of, of, of being young, frankly. Um, and then number two, I think in, in my community, in my family, being real is a, is a, is a, uh, is a, is a prize. It, 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 it's, it's worth value. Um, cause even now with my staff, I'm like, if we make, if you make a mistake, just say, sorry, just admit, but for me, it's just acknowledgement of mistake. It's not that the mistake was made, but just acknowledge you made it. And I, I, and I think for a lot of people it's off putting cause folks know that people aren't perfect. Right. And but I think for me also, because my mistake happened so public, my mistake didn't happen while I was a private citizen. <laughs> it happened while I was in elected office. So it was on everyone's TV screen, everyone's Facebook page. Everyone's Twitter in a hundred mile radius for two months. Um, and I think because of that crucible and that intensity of the gaze, it forced me to be really, really forthcoming. Like, look, this is what happened. I am sorry it shouldn't have happened. There is no excuse. This is what I'm doing to address it. But this, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to make excuses. But what I found is that folks were really receptive to that. And now when I talk to students or schools or even community members about it, there's a there's a level of Ah, I guess I made mistakes too. Or, ah, he is real. He's not some super Stanford kid. And he's a real flesh and blood human who makes dumb decisions sometimes as well. Um, so I, I think that's where it comes from. And I, and I think for me, it's just, I'm, I deal better when things are out in the open and frank. So look, I don't, you don't have to Google it. <laughs> this is what happened. Um, and it's, but I think because it was it was already so public, it just made no sense logically. Yeah. Um, that didn't exist because it was, it was public; like every, everyone knew it was a story of of twenty fourteen. Yeah, and you know, and now you're mayor, and you know you've been mayor. Uh, you're 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 now deep into your term, and you are responsible for a city um, at a remarkably young age. You're you're what twenty seven now? You're twenty six when you're elected. Yeah, just uh, seven a month ago. Uh, so you are one of the youngest mayors in America, and you are now thrust into the middle of a debate that's raging across America about racial justice and police. And in reading about you as mayor, um, I I thought your approach and a lot of your rhetoric I found. Uh, different than a lot of politicians I found out there. And, you know, I, I, I come from a family that has a lot of police officers um, and my brother is a, a correctional officer. And, um, I find the way that you talk about police 
is uh, is a little bit different than than Democrats. Like, how how are you threading the needle and authentically uh, talking about racial justice while also being responsible for the lives and careers of police officers under your keep? Yeah, I, I mean, a lot of it has come from a lot of time spent with officers, and a lot of time spent with community members, and seeing where interests overlap and converge. And for me, what I realized is that officers, by and large, have one of the most difficult jobs in this country because our response to every social ill is cops. Um, they would tell, they, officers would tell me parents would call them to get their kids to go to school. Um, hospitals would call them to deal with mental health patients who are acting like mental health patients um, and, and things of that sort. And I realized that part of frustration from a officer perspective is that their law enforcement, but oftentimes a lot of their job is spent being social workers, counselors, teachers, and parents, and they're not necessarily trained for that or well-trained for that. Um, and on the flip side, I would see with community members that folks didn't necessarily like, didn't dislike police. They didn't like being policed, if that makes sense. So it wasn't that they had an officer, a problem with officers. They were saying, well, I'm not doing anything wrong. So I don't know why I'm personally being targeted by law enforcement. I um, mean, also, like a lot of these folks live in communities that have a lot of needs, whether it's high unemployment, low educational attainment, lack of health care, lack of grocery stores. If the only response from the community is cops, you're setting the cops up for failure because that's not what the community necessarily needs or the only thing the community needs. So in working close with our police chief and our police department, I've been saying officers are at their best when they get, are able to do their job. The tension happens when they're called on to solve all the other societal issues that they're not equipped to solve. Um, so we've been really, really aggressive about um, ha- working with our police department and saying, you guys have been forced to do a lot of things that I personally think law enforcement should be doing. So how do I bring up along community partners with you? So you can do the policing work and community policing, but we have social workers actually doing social work. And we have jobs actually doing the economic development work. And like cops cannot be our country's only anti-poverty strategy. And right now that's what they are. They're literally our solution to poverty. Cops. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so that but that that just that just came from deep empathy work with cops and communities and trying to figure out what what's the issue here. And it's funny, like people and there's a whole body of evidence from like Yale Law School that talks about procedural justice and says that communities of color, especially black men, don't necessarily dislike cops more than others. The issue is that, or don't what, believe in laws and order for sure. The issue is with the administration of the law when it's not done in an equal way, that the procedures are just, which, unjust, which causes the mistrust. Um, so anyway, that was probably a long answer you were looking for. Um, but I think cops aren't going anywhere. Communities aren't going anywhere. And if we don't get serious about doing things more than just cops, poverty's not going to go anywhere. So we have to be taking a really hard look at what, who's doing what, who's responsible for what, and what does a real collective impact strategy look like for these very complex and not easy to solve issues. And so in closing, uh, you, you ran for office originally, I believe, on a, on a slogan of reinventing Stockton. Reinvent Stockton. What do you say? Yep, reinvent Stockton, absolutely. So tell us... What does that mean? And what happens for the rest of your term? Uh, where are you going? If, we are, if you are successful, Mayor Tubbs, and, and, and you know, in the history books, it says Mayor Tubbs reinvented Stockton. What does that mean? 
Oh man, you have enough time? No. Um, I think first is working with our state legislator to put a CSU Stockton in the city. We're the second largest metro area in this country and the largest in the state without a public institution. Um, number two on the economic development front, we're right now working with partnerships with companies like Udacities and others um, to really prepare our workforce for the, for the jobs that exist today and tomorrow. Um, we've also been working with... Um, our local regional transit district and some electric bus manufacturers to really think through how do we make Stockton the hub for green job talent? How do we train all our residents? So we could, our goal is to establish training centers in that space specifically. Um, that'd be, that'd, that would be huge. Um, on, on the violent crime front, really focusing on how do we reduce our homicide rates um, from triple the state average to below the state average with a really data informed approach that really looks at the less than 1% of people who drive 80% of our violent crime and figuring out, like I said earlier, in addition to cops and jail time, or besides that, what more can we give to folks? Um, our port is a huge asset. So it's look where we, and we're bringing in a, um, not, not, not all data technologies, which is a California based um, data center that's environmentally sound and, and to the port, hopefully as a catalyst for economic development in, in the tech sector in the city. It looks like a pluralistic community. Um, it also looks like a community that figures out that we don't have the solutions to every challenge, but we're working that we found a way to house as many homeless people as we can and keep houses affordable for folks who live here. Um, so yeah, so basically I, I would say in terms of 20 years from now, I want people to say that the Tubbs administration brought in a lot of Oh, yeah. The last thing is the Stockton Promise. We're really looking at how do we create a, a promise program that removes all barriers for our young people who want to go to college or career. Um, so to, to succinctly answer your question, I think for me, reinventing Stockton means making Stockton a community that's desirable for everyone, that folks want to live in Stockton, that it's a family community with recreation that's close to everything, that's safe, that has good schools and that folks want to be here and folks want to live here. And that we're also doing more to address our issues with poverty than with just cops. Well, Mayor Tubbs, thank you so much for joining us and congratulations on, on your uh, engagement. You're getting married December 9th. Is that right? Oh, nice. Big day. Um, I'm sad that you can't make it to Arizona for that, but uh, uh, so proud of you. You are the example that we give to folks about running for office and being yourself. Uh, I, I think about, uh, your your story all the time i share your story all the time and so thank you please come back and good luck uh on your journey as you reinvent stockton same here and i want to say thank you to you and your team for what arena is doing um to see where it started in just what a year ago or not even a year ago but eight months ago um where you guys are now that's incredibly inspiring and just seeing how many people you guys have brought to be engaged in the process so count me as a partner i'm proud of you guys and your work um, and if you ever run for office, please hit me up for a donation. Aha, I'll, I'll take you up on that. Thank you. Yes, sir.